The time's 4 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, streaming online at WERU.org and now on the new WERU app. Stay tuned for Coastal Conversations with Katherine Schmidt coming up next. in the Acadia region have been studying clams in their environment alongside fishermen and town committees who manage the local fishery. Working with living things like clams generates a lot of questions that science can help answer. How many baby clams are living in the mud? How are they affected by invasive green crabs? The science in turn generates questions about information learned from nature. What does it mean to collect data? How do observations translate into action? What are the logistics of bringing the classroom to the mudflat? More broadly, bringing young people into nature for studies that have implications for their families and communities makes science relevant and real. Nature, too, becomes a real thing, a place for interaction and relationships. What are the lifelong impacts of the outdoor classroom? What will these students remember and respond to as they continue their learning journeys? I'm your host, Katherine Schmidt from Scudic Institute at Acadia National Park, and it's my pleasure to be guest hosting Coastal Conversations today. For the next hour, we'll be discussing what it means to bring the classroom to the mudflat. And I'm really pleased to have in the studio with me today three guests. Um, Bill Zolik, who's Education Research Director Emeritus with Scudic Institute, Sarah Hooper, Education Specialist with Scudic Institute, and Mike Pinkham, Goldsboro Shellfish Warden. Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Catherine. Oh, Catherine. Hi. Um, so I'm going to have everyone just um, introduce themselves again and just say a little bit about how, um, their role in bringing students um, out to the mudflats and how they first got involved in the project. Hi, I'm Sarah Hooper, and I am the Education Specialist with Scudic Institute. And I first started uh, with the Institute in just in August, so I've only been here a short time, but I've been a teacher for 13 years, and I was a scientist before that. And so this project had already started in the high school, and I have been fortunate enough to be a part of bringing it to the middle schools and expanding the work that we do with our students there. Hi, uh, I'm Bill Zolik. I'm been with the Scudic Institute for about 15 years, and all of that time I've been working with uh, teachers and kids. Um, about for the last four or five years, I've been working much more at the uh, on community science, and uh, for the last couple, three years, I've been involved in working with this project uh, with uh, shellfish. Hi, I'm Mike Pinkham. Um, I'm retired Marine Patrol, and I'm the current shellfish warden for the town of Gooseboro. And we, I saw a need for the municipality to imp try to improve its uh, shellfishing opportunities. And that's how we got involved with the people from Scotic Institute. Mike, can you say a little more about that need and sort of what, what is the problem? All municipalities up and down the coast are struggling with predators, man being the biggest predator, but the green crab is second on the list. Um, in the Gooseboro area south, there is a thing called the milky ribbon worm also that likes our soft-shell clams. And the reproduction, the spat is falling, but these predators are eating them before they grow big enough to harvest. Can you give a sense, uh, you know, our listeners a sense for how big a deal is our clams um, to this region? We have a lot of 
a lot of folks around here that make a, a decent living um, harvesting clams, and it's very important to them. Um, it's a way of life. A lot of them, their parents have done it, and they've moved along, and it's a lot of people think that it's not a fashionable career. It's kind of dirty, but they do make good money, and they can provide for their family. And what's happened is with the clams disappearing because of the predators, it's becoming more difficult. And so how did that lead to thinking that schools might be able to help? Well, students need science, and it kind of fell into my lap. Um, Bill had been working with the school on another project, and there was a need for some students to have a science credit. And that's when I got the idea to try to involve the students in the Gooseboro shellfish issue um, and bring them out and help us decide to make decisions and make better decisions to manage our flats. So, Bill, when the project started, can you tell us a little bit about starting the effort and maybe um, how things are different now than when you, you know, what was what was surprising and what's really changed from what you thought, how you thought it was going to go? Sure. Um, we got started um, really getting, as Mike said, initially we were really focusing just on the kids doing some science. And these uh, are what, eight, what uh, age? At that time, we, we'll talk a little bit about it. It's yeah. grown, but at that time... Uh, it was mostly high school students, and were, they were students, I should sort of say, at, at uh, Sumner High School in the Pathways Program. Uh, these and are what is that? What's the Pathways uh, Program? <laughs> the Pathways Program is a program that is a more flexible schedule because most of these students uh, have, have to work in order to support themselves, support siblings at home, uh, to support their families. So they're in a... a Maybe a third of the kids are um, in a situation where, where they're somewhat food insecure, where they don't have a, 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 regular, a regular family to, to live and grow up with. Uh, uh, and most of them are in a circumstance where the, the ability to work is, is pretty essential in addition to going to school. So uh, they have a flexible schedule. And in a way, for our purposes, uh, the tides actually don't, pay much attention to the bell schedule at all. So having, um, having st students who can be out um, collecting samples, uh, washing them, uh, doing the research when it needs to be done has actually been, been quite an advantage. But what I wanted to get back to was why. So we started out actually having the students uh, work with some of the scientists at the Skudik Institute on issues that were of interest to those scientists, but it was clear to me that having the students be more engaged with things that were going on in their community would, um, well, that they would be a lot more engaged and interested if it, if it, if it mattered to the, their families and to, to the community that they lived in in a, in a way that was really apparent. I happened to run into Mike uh, at a uh, shellfish meeting and it became clear pretty quickly that um, that it, they really needed information in addition to having essentially student power to help do work. Uh, the, the, the biggest thing that's changed in the last 10, 15 years is, is, is the Gulf of Maine has gotten warmer. Um, the number of green crabs uh, that survive in the winter uh, has increased a lot. So there's a lot more of them. And so it, it's pretty much the case that if you don't protect the 
clams from the green crabs that, um, that there are very few harvestable clams. And so the question is then, okay, if that's true, then we're going to have to put down nets and do other things to protect them. We want to invest that time and, and also there's, you end up putting down seed clams so that you're, 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 you're increasing the, the number that are available. That's money and time. So you want to do that where you get the best results. And uh, to know where that is, we have students going out and doing experimental work in the flats where they figure out where the clams grow the fastest and where the predation is most manageable. Mike had mentioned milky ribbon worms. If we've got milky ribbon worms, that's something that we really can't protect against. So it's really identifying places where it's mostly a green crab issue where we really can protect against them. But until you actually collect some data and do some research, uh, you don't know where that is. And so that's where the kids in the school come in. Would that's would you call it citizen science? I noticed you use the term community science. Um. Sure. I mean, uh, community science, citizen science, it's the, the key thing is that um, I, I think some of the real community science that's going on also involves the shell fishermen. So, I mean, one of the things that that we've seen change is that the shell fishermen over the last, you know, Mike can speak to this too, over the last couple of years have gotten a lot more interested in actually seeing the data. Uh, and uh, they've come to understand that, that this is not something where you, you just go out and it's going to work all of the time. You really need to have an understanding of where it's going to work. There's some risk involved. And knowing where to put their time and energy is something that, um, I'll just tell you a quick story. Uh, last year we ended up, the kids ended up, looking at two, two coves. One of them, growth wasn't much, and it was pretty easy that that wasn't going to be a good place to put seed clams. The other cove looked really good. Growth was fantastic. Uh, it looked like we were having good survival. Uh, when the kids looked at the data, uh, we saw, and it was a, something we just began, the kids and I began to see together, was that something funny was going on that we didn't understand. And as we dug into the something funny, what, what it turned out was is that at lower levels in the, in the tide, uh, out further out in the water, it was, it was clear that there were some milky ribbon worms out there that we didn't know about. Uh, what that meant was is that, uh, that despite the fact that it looked like a great place, it probably wouldn't be a great place once you put a bunch of clams in there. Uh, you, the milky ribbon worms would have moved in and, and essentially wiped out the town's investment for that. That was a big turning point. Uh, up to that point, I think that the shell fishing uh, committee there was thinking, well, this is a great thing we're doing for the kids. It's good to have the kids involved. And at that point, it became, wow, we really need to know about this stuff. And so this year, uh, the amount of interest that the committee has had in terms of having the kids look at more and do more uh, ha has really expanded, which is just great. It's, it's great to have the kids learning, but it's also really important that the town's getting something out of it, too. Yeah, Mike, do you have a comment on that, on how, like, how useful has the information been that the students are collecting and creating? I think that um, we had the students last year after they had worked with Bill for the, they made a presentation in the spring last March um, to the committee, and we had some, we put it out, and some town folks came, and the folks from DEI, and these students um, presented their data, um, and uh, the committee really took notice. Like I say, I, I think that Bill's right that they didn't um, 
really have much thought on what was going on out there, but they're the ones that are making a living. And the students proved that if we put our clams there with the milky ribbon worms, they're not going to be there when they go to harvest them. And they've got to grow, depending on location, two or three years to get to legal size. All right, we're going to come back to the clams. Um, Sarah, I'm curious how sort of more about, I want to talk a little bit about the um, the sort of process of what it's like to take students out in the field and also a little bit of the for the for any educators who may be listening bill i know we also sort of research what we're doing with students and so i'd like to touch on that a little bit and we are going to open up the phones in just a couple minutes if you have any questions for our guests but sarah given that you're relatively new uh, you know from this sort of outside perspective but given your history um, working in the field of education as well as 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 a scientist what is what's new or different about this initiative this is an amazing initiative that brings kids and communities together and there's there's all there's something that's almost magical about it um, but it's also based in science and so what we're looking at is really good education and really good science at the same time. And what happens is the students, because they're working on something that's actually meaningful to them, their engagement in the learning is higher. And so both their enthusiasm, but also what they get out of it is much higher than what it might be, particularly for kids that don't thrive in a traditional setting where they're sitting in classrooms or looking at textbooks. And so this kind of work actually makes it meaningful to them. And kids, it's it's astounding to see how kids rise to the occasion. And, and a student that may struggle um, on traditional tests or traditional types of assignments, suddenly you put them in this kind of situation where they have a real audience and the work that they do matters. The students get that and it, and it takes them to a new level of learning for them and it takes them a new level of their engagement and how they learn and what they're learning. And so then there have actually been studies that have shown that kids actually walk out of it with much greater understanding than if they're just memorizing facts or or kind of concepts that are kind of out of context to the real world. Do any of you have have examples without um, sort of naming names of students who maybe had this experience where you see them all of a sudden understanding a scientific concept um, that they may not have before from seeing it actually being applied? We do. I would sort of say it's more understanding that they can do science and that they like it uh, than it is any particular concept. The changes that I've seen have been where kids had kind of written science off as something that other kids do. It's not kind of wasn't their thing. And we've had, just in the last couple of years, students decide, well, actually, I am going to do that. And we've had, uh, st- and they've gone into uh, nursing programs, and they've gone into uh, programs in, in statistics. Uh, and that wasn't on their that wasn't their plan when they started the program, but w- when they were done with the program, that it was actually uh, what they decided they wanted to do. Uh, my name is Katherine Schmidt. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio. We'd like to open this conversation to any of you out there who might have questions about bringing students out to the mudflat, and we are going to talk about bringing students out to the mudflat um, and the logistics of that in a minute. The number to call is 469-0500. Um, my guests in the studio are Bill Zulick and Sarah Hooper from Scudic Institute at Acadia National Park and Mike Pinkham, Goldsboro Shellfish Warden. Um, Mike, we just covered a little bit about students who maybe weren't thinking about becoming scientists and 
now, you know, have gone into that field. And I'm curious about Genevieve McDonald, who's um, in the state legislature and a fisherman. And she just had a, a commentary published about this idea that you're just a fisherman and that we need to, um, you know, shouldn't be saying that anyone is just a fisherman. And have you found students who are, you know, change their path in terms of we're going to go into fish, you know, into fishing for clams and now are doing it more or students who hadn't thought about it who now might have decided to become clam harvesters? I don't think we've had anybody that has actually said that they're going to be <laughs> um, interested in becoming a clam digger um, and harvesting clams. But on the other aspect of it, they realize that it is hard work and they have an understanding of it. And I think that's going to make them better stewards, even if they don't go into that, for their local shellfish committee in their community. And I think, yeah, that's what speaks to the community science aspect where they're learning about other members of their community. Right. So that the, so that they have, there have to be decisions made and maybe something that they've learned. They can express their opinion and the facts that they've learned and, the, you know, based on some data and interject it into a conversation. Maybe not when Gooseboro's talking, but maybe they move somewhere else downstate or something and the community starts talking about shellfish and they say, hey, I have some knowledge of that. And what is, let's share some stories about what that knowledge is. I don't, I've never dug clams from the mud. So I, you know, what are some, what is some of the like really cool things that students and the fishermen know about the mud or have learned about the intertidal zone um, as a result of this initiative? I wondering if I could actually go a little bit different direction in terms sure. of where the students I So one of the things that I'm thinking of one student in particular who is, fishing and uh, doing all right with it. Uh, but I, I would say that that student through this project has begun to see himself as actually part of the community in ways that he didn't see himself before. Uh, before he saw himself as a guy that was out on a boat making money. Uh, and now he's actually been presenting to, um, he understands that that this this is something that actually involves a lot of people working together. And I think he feels part of that now. Um, and I think that's a pretty big deal. And how, I mean, that sounds awesome. How hard is it? Like, how hard is this work? How hard is it to get a result like that? Go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> no, I was just going to have you close. So from, from the students or from the, to get them to, to Either. be able to see? Yeah. Um, it takes... It takes structuring this in a way that they they can actually participate in it. I mean, if it we're not just throwing kids out there saying, "Hey, go go do research on clams, go do research on crabs," and so it's 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 really making those connections between the students and the community. Um, it's structuring the science in a way that that's accessible to them. Uh, but we couldn't do it honestly without the community's involvement, and so without Mike being a part of this, that they can see. Um, they can they can actually directly see they can look at the person in the eye of of who this matters to and that's huge that's huge for students that may not have had those kind of connections before there's another partner that i'd like to acknowledge and bring into the conversation and that's the school district um we have had exceptionally good fortune to have a school district that is pretty committed to the notion that all students should become proficient and that it's not just textbooks that, that you become proficient by doing things. And so um, we started out, you, 
mentioned earlier that we started out working with high school students, and this year, as Sarah came on board, the district asked us to expand the program down to the middle schools. So now we're working with um, five schools. We're working with four K through eight schools, middle school students there, and then also the high school. And I think you asked what's hard about it. it what's hard about it is that your structure, as Sarah said, you're, you're having to structure the learning around a project rather than just out of getting something out of a book. And um, that requires a change in the way that, that, the, that the day flows. It requires a change in the way that the teacher approaches the material. And, I, uh, you know, hats off to RSU24 for being willing to take that on and, and, and make it work. And it must cost money to do this? It does cost money. Uh, and uh, thank you for that, because I want to acknowledge that the support that we've had right now is from the Sewell Foundation. And without the Sewell Foundation, we wouldn't be doing this. So yes, it, it, it does require external support in order to do this, um, partly because it's sort of like changing course. And when you're changing course, that means that people have to have time to meet, they have to have time to plan, and so that's that's where the money goes. Any other thoughts on what's hard about it? Uh, yeah, working out in the field is always tricky um, because the the outdoors doesn't necessarily fit in the typical school day, or it doesn't fit when we're trying to figure out tides. We can't ask the tide to to please do what we need it to do during a school day or during the time. And so coordinating that, getting teachers to understand um, the flexibility of or having them, you know, asking them to put this kind of flexibility into their program can be really difficult in, in that making that kind of change. And so it's it's teachers learning to teach in a new way. It's getting students to take responsibility for their learning for students that um, haven't had to do that where they're maybe they're really good at memorizing things and so that's a whole new way for students to learn and so it's it's really it's it is systemic change in that sense it's change in a big way of for teaching and learning for both the students and the teachers to work and so that can be tricky it can be hard as a teacher to to make those kind of shifts there are a lot of things that teachers are asked to do and to cover in their classroom and so we're asking them in a project like this to to recognize that the kids are learning really important skills about science. They're also learning really important concepts about ecosystems in this case. Um, but they may be learning them deeper rather than learning lots and lots of things in a broad way. And so it's it's recognizing that practicing science skills that are real is a really important thing to do in learning and also to recognize that Yes, they may not learn a whole bunch of different things, but the things that they learn, they're going to learn really well, and they're going to be able to apply them in real situations. I think one of the things that's been difficult for some of the teachers, because it takes time, is it's a proficiency-based system where they have to be proficient in certain areas, and maybe the English teacher didn't realize that how these projects are going to translate into that. But we've had the students doing presentations. They've been working on data. Uh, preparing posters and charts um, and presenting it to their peers and then presenting it to the shellfish committee and um, members of the community. That's all falls under, you know, public speaking and things like that. So it's, it's new for the teachers to figure out how to grade that also because it isn't just an A or a B because you remembered certain things. So it's not just these projects aren't just for their science class then? No. 
Okay. I would love to see them have more teachers involved. Right now, we're only working with the science teachers primarily uh, in the middle school specifically, but there is opportunity here for for really cool, uh, important cross disciplinary work. And this is part of, and you were asking about what makes it difficult, but what makes it difficult is you've got to have. It is essential that that we document what these kids are gaining in terms of proficiency. It's not some, not as quite as easy as having them do a paper and pencil test and scoring it. So it, it does require uh, that you really think differently about how it is that you you uh, record evidence of growth. Yeah, like do they take tests about the environment, about the intertidal environment? Usually not in a project like this. This is the cool thing about project-based learning is typically the product, the end product is... Um, is it like we've experienced here is something real, it's authentic. It, it means something to wh- whoever their authentic audience is. So it, there may be little quizzes or little assessments along the way that they can do to kind of help check in and see if they're getting the understandings that we want. Um, but it's not, it's not that traditional like test or quiz on whatever the random thing is that we're, we're studying at the time. One of the cool things about a project like this is it's not um, oftentimes when as teachers we might do a project is we might teach the students a whole bunch of things and then we do the project at the end and we're like okay we've learned all these things now we're going to do a project about it in the learning process like this the project is the learning and and so the students are learning from the start to finish it's not um, it's not an add-on at the end it actually is the way that students are learning and so they're really learning it in a in a realistic way and in a deep way and they're 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 invested in the project because and because the topic is usually meaningful to them they're much more invested in their learning and so it, the whole process from start to finish is a learning process um, that they're working on and I wonder how much are they also learning a sense of place so I'm I'm really interested in how, um, outdoor experiences and field experiences impact young people um, and, and affect their um, sort of environmental attitudes and connection to place throughout their lives. And so I wonder, and Mike, you might, you know, any of you might know this, how much are they already connected? Like, do, do they already know that environment? Have they already been out in that environment um, of the mudflats? Was this, you know, new to them? Um sort of that that place where they're realizing maybe that they do know a lot and they're also learning a lot about the place where they live. Why don't you talk about the middle school students' responses to being out on the mud <laughs> it's, it, it It is. Many of them, even if they live near the coast, have not been out on a mud flat, in the, particularly not in the way that we took them out there. And so... So can you describe the way that you took them out? Oh, there? we did. So we we brought out and thanks to the school district, they we were able to get 29 middle schoolers, 6th through 8th graders from all four of the feeder schools to Sumner, so all four of the RSU 24 um, middle school kids, we uh, met at a cove. At once? 29 at once? 29 at once. And Mike was out there. We had three DMR, um, Department of Marine Resources biologists, out with us. We had a couple of teachers. We had some district support and Bill and I. And so 
Uh, and then we also took out eight, I think it was eight um, of the high school mentors that we had been working with. That's a lot of people to take out on a clam flat all at one time. And so there's... Do they have gear? Like, what, do you, what ha- are the students prepared to walk out there? Gives me a chance to thank another funder. <laughs> uh, the Scuda Community Fund provided essentially uh, boots and other equipment in a, sort of as a equipment lending library okay. that allowed us to make sure that the kids weren't just... Well, they all they got muddy anyway, but at least they were getting their boots muddy rather than um, okay so So we gave them boots we did give them boots we asked them to come prepared to be in the mud now you might be surprised at what a whole body experience that being out on the mud flats can be with students and some of them some of them really tried hard not to get muddy and some of them tried really hard to get as muddy as they could and all of that was okay one of the things when you asked about students being out uh, and learning out in the outdoors, there is something very visceral, uh, making visceral connections of being directly there. We can talk about it. We can show them pictures of it. But to actually have students out there, even if they're not doing something very structured, but just the fact of being out there in the mud flats, tromping through the mud, trying to figure out how they're going to walk in the mud, helping their friends through the mud, digging through seaweed, looking for crabs, all of those are very visceral connections that the students start to make with the landscape that they're on. And and even the kinds of things, even if they, they go different places, there's something about recognizing that going out into their landscape, wherever that might be, becomes something that's important. And it's important to their learning, but it's also just important to their life experience. We, and, we usually have the students write uh, reflections of various kinds afterwards. And the reflections on that one were a lot about Smells a lot about the the smell of the salt, the smell of the ocean. Uh, um, there was also a lot about just how hard it was to walk in the mud, and, and uh, so, but yeah, it was good stuff. Well, I have when Sarah was doing the wrap up after we got all the students off and teachers off the mud, <laughs> and they were getting ready to go home. Sarah was doing a little wrap up, and one student chimed up and said, "If I can learn science like this, I'll do it every day." I mean, and, and that really moves you when you're standing there and you've got these kids that haven't been down on the mud and got a chance to experience nature and have participate. They, have they had, do they eat the, any clams? That way we were, that day we were doing crabs. I certainly hope they were not eating those crabs because it'd be <laughs> disgusting. Although that's, there been talk about eating crabs. Um, but boy, they, they sure learned the mud. I don't know, it'd be interesting to see how many of them went out and ate clams afterwards, but... Um, yeah, they they certainly had hands and feet and arms and legs in the mud as much as they could. I think you asked about place, and place is certainly mud flats and, and um, the physical place. Place is also people. And one of the things that I, I – Mike, would you just talk a little bit about running into kids at Young's Market and how that has been different? A little bit now? Since we did this little project and since we've been involved with high school, um, I have the students come up to me and speaking to me and saying hi and things like that. And before that, they wouldn't have spoken to me in the store or out and about. It just would not have happened. They've We've gained a little bit of rapport, and it's continuing to grow, and that's a great thing as far as I'm concerned. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio. We are talking about community science education and project-based learning with Sumner Memorial High School. My guests in the studio are Bill Zulick and Sarah Hooper from Scudic Institute and Mike Pinkham, who is the shellfish warden for the town of Goldsboro. Um, 
staying on this theme of and we'd also be happy to take your questions you can call us at 469-0500 talking about students who have these field experiences and and i've in just in researching the issue that be, the age the age is important. So the age that they are, middle school, high school, they're very imprintable. Um, and there are a couple of theories on to why we, we, our memories fuse so much. So um, if you think back, you can probably remember pretty vividly um, places that you were, people, experiences, events from when you were um, a teenager or maybe in your early 20s even. So this holds true for college students, whereas you probably can't remember anything from 10 years ago. So there's something about that, this time period, that really imprints and forms memories. And so I think that's why these field experiences of getting outside are really important. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think um, it's a, and it's a, when we're trying to combine um, just being outside and and combine that with science and combine that with community, students are very impressionable impressionable at this age in a good way. I mean, this is where we want them to be impressionable and to take this in, and it does become uh, very real and very vivid to them. I, um, I yeah, I've got memories from sixth grade of 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 a teacher who who got who brought in a tank full of lizards that we were able to play with. I couldn't tell you a lot of what else we did in sixth grade, but I should remember that. And these are the kinds of experiences that students will remember and they'll take forward with them in in many different ways, in ways that we can't even predict right now. Bill or Mike, do you have a sixth grade science memory? I certainly don't. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I do either. Or place memory? What What I will say is that we, it's been fun this year. This is the first year we've been working with the 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. And there is, um, there is definitely an, an openness uh, there that is a little different when we're working with the high school students. We sort of have to get past something a little bit sometimes with the older kids. But at, at work, beginning of work with the younger kids, there's a real willingness to just dive in and have a go at it, which is just great. They are. They're, they're so excited about it. And and Bill alluded to it earlier. Sixth grade is, is important. The middle school age is important because many kids at that point might already think that they're not good at science and they're already turned off from it. So I think even waiting to high school can be too late sometimes to, to catch those kids. And if we can start introducing it to them in, in the early middle school grades, they carry that forward then and they actually see that science is something that they can do. And not only can they do it, it's kind of cool to do it. It's fun and it's exciting and, and it matters and what they do matters. And so it really bring science alive in ways that they might not get in other settings. Yeah, I agree. I feel like we're doing much more sort of recovery work at the high school level, whereas with the younger kids, we're really, there's still uh, a real opportunity to, to shape and move forward, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. What do you mean by recovery? Um, it's the idea, I can't do this. And so, that mean, the... Like their minds are already made up, made up about <laughs> school or science or... I would sort of say their minds are made up about... Uh, the the buzzword for it is self-efficacy, but it's it's I can't do this. I can't do math. I'm not any good at this. I can't do science. Other kids do science. I can't do it. And so it's really turning that around so that the the the, the child can sort of say, I can do this. And um, we've seen we've seen that transition. Um, but that's what I mean by recovery. 
And why do we need why do we need to recover that efficacy? Why do we need all these students doing science and being excited about science? Well, we don't need them all to grow up to be scientists. We don't need them all to go get PhDs, but we sure as heck need them all to be um, thinking about the systems and thinking in terms of systems. We need to be having them think about evidence. We need to think have them thinking about uh, how it is that you make a decision on the basis of evidence. That's all really big stuff. Uh, it's uh, good stuff for the, for the entire coast of Maine, if I may say so, so. And certainly for thousands of years, fishermen have been making decisions on the basis of evidence. But would they have thought that that was science? I think that there's a think of change. So one of the things, and I, this is very much uh, something we worry about the Skidik Institute, the pace at which the systems are changing is so fast now that what it is that was true even five, eight years ago with regard to the mudflats just isn't true right now. It's just not. So um, that means that you're really having to be much more deliberate about finding out what's true now that maybe was true or wasn't 10 years ago. But it, I think it would be fun to talk with you about this. I, I see, as we talked to the, in the Shellfish Committee meetings, I see much more openness to the idea that it isn't the way it used to be and that we're in a different space, and that means we've got to do something different. I think the diggers certainly realize that from what they used to dig, you know, like Bill said, five or eight years ago per tide has certainly changed. There are locations that do have, you can get a good dig, but back then there was places that, it was many places that you could get a good dig, and now they've come to learn that they have to do something about it. And one of the things that we keep preaching at the meeting is I personally am not depending on that commercial shellfish license. They are, so that they have to take an interest. And Bill is right. They really are listening and and paying attention to the, some of the decisions and the discussion. They're participating in the discussion now. They're not just sitting there not making any comments or playing on their phone. They're listening and participating. And do you, do you agree that the because of the accelerating pace of change, we can't just wait for knowledge to be acquired over time the way it traditionally has, that we need to speed things up and we need to be deliberate about learning things and experimenting and sort of employing some of the approaches of science. Well, I think that one of the things that Bill said is that, that he said about the students is true of the uh, of the fishermen because they didn't figure that they could ever have any input into these decisions being made. And now with the work of the students and what's going on in the discussions that we're having at the meetings, they realize that they do have a say because they're on the flats every day. I'm not. The students aren't. They are. So they have important input to contribute to any conversation that we have. And they're starting to realize that, that they can make a difference by what they say. And do you think the student, so that the student involvement has helped. So this idea that students, because they're just learning, they're not in a position of power, they're not in a political position, can kind of be be catalysts for things. And that's what, you know, it seems like that's adding to the community part of the community science. Definitely. Yeah. I definitely. They, they, you like know. if it was just Bill coming in and, you know, or scientists from Scudic Institute coming in and saying these things, it, it may not have happened. No, I agree with you, and it's it's just one of those things that they've, they've decided that they have to participate in, and when you have the students that are bringing 
information back to them, it helps them make a better decision. We also believe that that the school has to be an essential part of the science that's going on in rural communities. Um, I suppose that if we were near a bigger city, we'd have museums, we'd have all sorts of other stuff where there'd be science. But honestly, in a lot of uh, rural communities, and I should add, we're, we're really looking at expanding this beyond Goolsboro. We're looking at taking this to other communities. But the school is a big part of what is available to help make decisions. And it's it, one of the things that I get excited about is trying to, to mobilize that capacity in a, in a town. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU. Call us with your questions about community science and project-based learning. The number to call is 469-0500. Bill, talk a little more about how do we bring this beyond, you know, beyond the Scudic Peninsula and, and make this a larger initiative so that other communities and other, um, places who are relying on the nature that's changing so fast can benefit? Boy, there are so many answers to that question. I'm going to ask for help from Mike and Sarah on this, but I'll get started. I mean, one way, and I, I'm excited about this, so one problem that that Goolsboro but other communities face is bringing down the cost of having seed clams. So one of the things that the kids and Mike and the town are all involved in is trying uh, basically an experiment to see if we can actually grow our own seed clams from very small stock, overwinter the clams. Well, there's no other community that's done that before. So it's it's something where Girlsboro is aware that it needs to do it, but it's also aware that if it does it, there's something to share. So there's a sense of really trying to connect very consciously with other communities up and down the coast uh, to try to share knowledge and capability to do this. Key partner for us in this is the Down East Institute down uh, on Great Wasp Island south of, of uh, Jones, Jonesport. Uh, but our intent is to try to do this kind of work up and down the coast with other high schools. But This kind meaning this clam, kind of work, clams specifically? Gathering data, finding okay. out where you've got the growth, finding out where you've got predation that you can't deal with, but then also really trying to figure out how this can be made economically supportable in a community. How can you bring the costs down? And that actually is, is the project that the high school students are beginning work on now. It's not just being in the mud, but it's really trying to get out all the information that we can gather from around the state. It, you know, you asked about sort of in some ways, the role of the students. And it, I would say that without the, the, the person power that the students provide, we really couldn't do this work. Uh, so it's really being able to put a lot of hands and brains to, to, to work on something. Uh, the, the, the scientists is good against it. We just don't have enough of us to, to cover it. Mike, I wonder, just for um, people who may be listening who don't quite understand how clam fisheries work, could you just, like, you have to buy seed? What is that about? What we've done in the past is we bought seed from Down East Institute, and it's, excuse me. Why do you have to buy, like, what's seed? What is that? What (laughs) Down East Institute does is they they grow their own seed, and they make it available to municipalities. baby clams. Baby clams. And what they do is. there's not enough in the wild? Well, there's plenty in the wild, but okay. the, we have these predators. Okay. What happens is, is a green crab will feed, no matter how small it is, will feed on a clam of like size. 
So clam spat floats through the water column for three weeks, approximately, and when it settles out, there's green crabs in that water column also, and when it settles out, the green crabs will be eating them. So we have evidence that there's plenty of spat being falling on the flats. The problem is that the predators are eating it before that it can even, most places, even get a start. So we have bought seed clams from Down East Institute for the last three or four years, and it's it's $2,500 for 100,000 clams. And they will sell us two millimeter seed for $800 for 100,000. So this is where this oversummering and overwintering project has come forward, um, trying to bring the cost down because every municipality is struggling with this in different ways. And every municipality doesn't have the same mud, the same water column and all that. So we have to, any information that we get or any information they get can be exchanged and we can hopefully make better decisions and put product back on our flats. And it isn't just for the commercial harvester. A recreational harvester can go down and dig a pack of clams for their own use. And it's very difficult. I want to just, I'm thinking, listening to this, I'm thinking that I'll just clarify that we're trying to restore flats. So you've got what people call it dead mud. So you've had flats where where there really isn't much to dig anymore. And so we're really trying to bring those back. And to bring them back, that's where the seed clams are so important is we seed them, cover them with nets, and we've, we've got a number of them now that are coming back and there, it isn't just that we dig the clams that we seed. There's good wild clams that are coming back to those those flats, and I'm thinking Joy Bay and other places. But so to be really clear, we're trying to restore dead dead mud. Okay, thanks for that clarification. Um, so, so can you talk more about this overwintering, this new project, and where did it come from, and the students' role? Well. I, to be honest with you, Bill and I took a ride down to Down East Institute here, I guess it's a couple, three weeks ago, maybe longer than that. And when Bill got in the truck, I said, you know, am I thinking too big here? Are we really trying to do something that is not attainable for us? Because I knew that we had the student help. But when we got down there, and we've been dealing with Kyle Pepperman down to the Down East Institute, been a great asset to us. And he essentially took us in and gave us a tour, which we've had before, but we really got down to talking particulars. And he talked to us and told us that it was doable on a far more affordable level than what I had thought and Bill had thought when we got in the truck. So we left there kind of renewed that with the help of the students and participation by the town, et cetera, that Gooseboro could enter into this project and hopefully get it off the ground and start summering clams over and putting them over in the winter in a wintering facility and then put them back on the flats as um, seed product in the spring. And I would add, this is where it gets really cool for the students and for us as educators because the what the students, what it means for the students now is they are embarking on a project that we don't know the answer to. So they have, they're going to help us figure out how do we do the over, you know, we, we've got a basic um, con- construct that we know, like we know how to make the little nursery box to float it, but where do we float it? And kids can study that and they can study, they, we want them to learn about who else is doing this in the state, how might it apply to the work that we're doing? We don't have any of those answers. And so the kids are actually getting to do something that 
we, we're not trying to get them to an answer or the answer because there is no right answer. They've got to figure it out, and they're going to bring that information to the, to the town. How and, do they respond? Like, how do they respond to that as students who are probably used to thinking that the teacher already has the answers? What's it, the reaction? It takes some coaxing sometimes. They kind of look at us a little wide-eyed, like, really? And, and we just reflect it right back, like, yeah, really, you're going to do this. And once they get going, they're engaged. Um, it takes structure. Again, it's not just letting them you know, go wild and free, but it'll be teaching them. And this is where the skills come in. Like, we'll teach you how to call up and, and have conversations with adults. We'll teach you, um, you know, how to build or how to, how to design a project. But we need you to actually do the work. And, and when it comes to this building we want to build to actually overwinter the clams, because there's two parts. There's, there's, there's getting them up through the summer and then there's getting them through the winter. And we need to build a building for that. And we're going to ask the kids to help us figure that out. What are what do we need in there? What's, what are the engineering designs that we need for that? And I want to stress, it isn't just that we're doing this because it would be neat to have the kids involved. So much of this, we literally cannot do it without that. that the people that's involved. We're really talking about getting a lot of folks on the phone trying to cover the state in terms of who else is overwintering oysters, what else do we know about this, aggregating that information. And the kids are an important resource. They'll also learn a heck of a lot as they do it. Yeah, I mean, from your just longer experience, how do they react when you tell them? I don't know the answer either. Um, A little surprised. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it's good. it's it becomes real and uh that's a good thing so what are some lessons that other school districts other educators other parts of maine could take away from this effort and um you know any thoughts about expanding it sort of more broadly and other people who want to take their classes out into the woods or out um into the salt marsh or um into the fields um you know, what could they, what have you learned that might be able to help? First off, I like your question because it, we do see this as being able to be done with things other than shellfish. The number of problems that communities face, the climate change is having impacts, as you noticed, in forests and other sorts of things. So these kinds of issues are things that are, that are, uh, we do believe that can be addressed in similar ways. Um, part of it is, goes for the, on the school side, it really goes to this notion that we were talking about earlier of helping schools find a different way of connecting the project to the, the notion of students acquiring standard proficiencies. We want them to learn how to analyze data. We want them to learn how to design an experiment. So those, okay, great. So how is it that we actually begin to make the connection between what that project is doing and the students actually improving and getting better at those things? That is a little bit new, but um, we're pretty sure that once we create some patterns for doing that kind of assessment as opposed to what you said earlier, a paper and pencil test, that then that is something that can be replicated and and that can grow within the school. Uh, That's certainly what we're aiming to do. And I would say, too, it's important um, from the school perspective that it's 
the teachers need to be on board, but it's really helpful to have the administration on board as well. And Amen. that's one thing yeah. that we have been really fortunate with with RSU 24 is the administrators because they need to be able to support their teachers. This is hard work. It takes new and different kinds of planning and collaboration um, that than they might be used to. It's not where a teacher just goes kind of into their classroom and closes the door and teaches the way they've always taught. It takes a lot more upfront work with that. And so... Um, it's great to have the administrators on board as yeah. well. And then a community partner is huge. And again, we've been so fortunate to be able to work with the shellfish. But as Bill alluded to, it could be any resource in the community that is there to create that partnership um, to help the kids see how and why it matters, help the teachers and the, and the school see how and why the work that they do matters. It does require rearranging school day, when teachers can meet, and those are things the teachers can't do on their own. So Sarah's absolutely right. You really, we really need the administrators behind it, and in this case, we've got that. I think that one thing that, that's that got to be said here is very important is I've been talking to the select board about this project right along, and they've been behind this. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I went to the board, and I had done a bunch of research because the town owned some property, waterfront property, et cetera, and I asked them, about using this particular piece of property, and they were right, very supportive. They know that we have the students involved. They know what we're trying to do is a, for a project. There are many people in town that it, they see me, they're asking me about what we're doing, and it's too really early to tell because we're in the development stages of it, but they're excited that it's taking place, and it's very important to have the, the town people, the select board, in favor of it, plus the community itself. And that's because you've been working with them all along, you think, and they've been they've known about the project. So the students have presented to the town. They the, the students have had the, the town has had the opportunity to come to the presentations and and they haven't, but they've seen the work, the data, the sheets and stuff that they've done, and it's we've been gradually building. It started out as one little project where we got the high school students down on the mud in an old lobster pound, and, and we've been progressively building to this wintering project that we're attempting to do right now. Catherine, uh, as you sent us uh, information before you asked us to do this interview, you one of the questions you asked us to think about is what's been hard. And what Mike is talking about is, in my mind, sort of the hard part. It's you can't do this just as the school. You can't do this just as the community. You can't do this just as a nonprofit organization trying to make a difference. And what's been hard has been keeping all of those things hooked up and keeping the communication going between them in a way that you're dealing with everybody's different missions. The things that a school has to do are really different than the things that a town has to do. And so keeping all of that lined up is actually the hard part. Um, it's also we think it's doable, but but you know uh, what Mike's talking about. None of this can work if you don't have all of those pieces working together. And is that the role that Scudic Institute is playing? Is sort of helping those yes, different pieces. Yes, I, I see Scudic Institute is in some ways being the 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 boundary crosser, the intermediary, the glue that keeps holding the pieces together. I, I uh, yeah, it's, 
we, that's what we think we're doing anyway. So we just have a couple minutes left um, in our conversation this afternoon, and I want to make sure we were, um, regretfully, we're not able to bring any students into the studio with us today um, because they are very busy, and we want to uh, respect their schedules, and logistically, it's difficult. But um, are there opportunities for people to hear from the students themselves coming up? Yes. Uh, and one of the things that at both levels, middle school and high school. So the high school students will be making certainly presentations to the Shellfish Committee. They will also be later this spring some sort of a, of a presentation of all of their work, particularly with regard to this new project uh, that we'll put together uh, at the high school and for the community. Uh, it, the work won't be done, but we do need to have the students presented. The middle school level, do you want to speak to that a little bit? We It'll be similar to as the kids put together the presentations. What we want is for them to be able to present to the high school because what we want the kids to be able to see is this is the progression of where they're headed. And so they will put together some event for them as well to be able to present with each other. Um, and then we'll also have students at the Maine Fisherman's Forum, which will be exciting. And the date for that? It's Shellfish Day at the Maine Fisherman's Forum in Rockland is March 5th. And I don't yet know when we'll be presenting that day. We do have a, uh, a panel discussion that we'll be uh, presenting there and uh, presenting this work. Uh, and we, we do ex intend to have a number of students helping us do that. All right. Well, thank you all so much um, for joining me today for this Coastal Conversation. Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program in partnership with the University of Maine Cooperative Extension and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The mission of Maine Sea Grant is to provide high-quality, science-based information, outreach, education, and support to Maine's coastal communities. I'm Katherine Schmidt, and I'm with Scudic Institute at Acadia National Park, guest hosting today for Natalie Springle. Um, thank you all so much for listening, and have a wonderful afternoon and a great weekend. Mm -hmm.